0: Welcome to Bank the Fire. I'm your host, Bob, and I started this podcast as an excuse to sit down with interesting people and share my conversations with you. I meet with entrepreneurs, CEOs, and friends to discuss what drives and motivates them, their definition of success, and what they do to keep themselves going. Today, I speak with Hatem Banaja, Senior VP of Taroso Investments. We discuss paying one's dues to choose career moves. I get a minor education in investment products, and we discuss his education in mind-body connection and how it came to change his life. This one is a little different from the others, folks. He is not technically an entrepreneur, but he has the entrepreneurial spirit. I, Bob Gallagher, am owner of Mahala Massage NYC, and Hatem Banaja is Senior VP of Toroso Investments. All views and opinions on this episode are solely mine and my guests. They do not represent the views of Mahalo Massage NYC or Toroso Investments. Please do not take any opinion expressed as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of our personal opinions. This episode is for informational purposes only. Hi, Hatem. Hello. We are on the air with Bank the Fire. But we've known each other for some years now. Pandemic has been uh, a game changer for you. Once upon a time, you were with a large financial institution, let's say. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly what you're doing for that financial institution, but I do remember since you come to Mahalo Massage for massages, I do remember that you were like, I'm done. (laughs) I'm burnt out. I need to walk away from this.
1: Yep, it's putting a lot of tension in those shoulders. So I spent about 15 years working at the big banks. I started at Lehman Brothers and then I worked at JP Morgan and Bank of America. And I always worked on the equity derivatives side of things. So first I was actually an accountant on the equity derivatives desk. And then I moved on to what we call a business manager role, which is a strategy and operational role. And that's what I did for call it the last seven or eight years that I was on the street and learned a lot of stuff. But to your point, it was not exactly aligning with what I wanted to do with my life. And pandemic was like a good wake up call to reassess and figure out what I wanted to do next in the space without like totally throwing away all of, you know, all the work and the connections and knowledge that I built up over
0: the years. I heard through the grapevine that at some point you, no, not through the grapevine, you told me this. That at some point you were thinking about doing your own thing. What was that? What, did, what does that entail? I mean, ultimately you didn't, but still, it's like we never really dived into that.
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that's still ultimately the goal. I think one of the big things that I figured out kind of when I was reassessing things after stepping away from the bank was that, you know, I do want to be my own boss at some point. And not just because I want to be my own boss, but because it gives you a lot of flexibility to decide who you work with, what you work on, kind of how you prioritize, not just what you're doing for work, but also how you set up your life. So a couple of things that I've been looking at were I mean, we we know each other through Adam, through the motorcycle community, and that was sort of how we got together. And that's uh, that's one of the things that I'm interested in looking at to still try and do, which is a motorcycle tourism type of business.
0: I don't think I've stayed on this on this podcast yet. Adam is my my partner in life. He's my husband. So so you all know my husband is a, a motorcycle dot guy. And that's how we know Hattam And that's why we're friends. I mean, that's not why we're friends, but, you know, because I love you even with or without Adam.
1: We're friends for many reasons, but we can thank Adam for bringing us together.
0: Yes, we can do that.
1: Yeah, so that that's what I'd love to do that. I mean, that it's a, it's a hard thing to get going. It's, uh, you know, the it, it's a very specialized space, both from the motorcycle side, but also from the luxury tourism side. So uh, that'll take a lot of work to get up and running. But it's still something that I'm having, we'll call them tertiary conversations in the background about. And then the other thing which I actually feel super passionate about but it's just been very difficult to get off the ground because because the rulemaking process was super slow and this is what I've really been hoping to work on over uh pandemic before I started with my new gig which was starting a uh, a cannabis dispenser in New York. So, I spent a lot of time doing research and actually visiting with a lot of the with with um, producers and with retailers in Massachusetts to kind of get an understanding of what they started doing over there just because I think that it's a Kind of opportunity to really help people explore and learn about what it is from a wellness perspective, not just from a, hey, let's go get crazy and get high perspective, Um, but really kind of help people wade their way in because it's a very, it's still a very stigmatized subject, right? but there are a ton of benefits just from a wellness perspective, from an anxiety perspective, from a, you know, from a mood moderation perspective and pain management. And so um, that's some, that's the angle that me and the partners that, that I'm looking at this with would like to take. It's just a little bit slower and we kind of put it on the back burner when we realized that, you know, the the state wasn't moving as fast as we'd hoped to. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then after that, I was very, I was lucky. I, I I actually I got hooked up with the company that I'm working with now. It's called Toroso Investments through a friend of mine who joined them over pandemic. I hadn't been looking to uh, to go work for anybody else again, but I was lucky enough to actually get introduced to them in another startup that just kind of culturally really aligned with what I wanted to do. I think you know as I mentioned before, uh, thinking about being my own boss, why do I want to do this? To choose who I want to work with and how I want to structure my life. And this is a place that really fits into that mold. It's a lot of people who started in, you know, in traditional finance, um, and then this is sort of the second act, you know, building a financial organization, leveraging off of the lessons that they learned from their initial careers in finance in the bigger institutions. And so we, you know, we're super aligned culturally. We everybody's got side gigs. Everybody's got, you know, very very high family focus. Very very mission driven, as opposed to bottom line driven. I mean, obviously, we're not in it for charity, but uh, the mission is is huge. And that, you know, it just, I got lucky, I say, I, I keep telling people, I found a place that fits me culturally, that will allow me to work from wherever I want to work. Um, and will, you know, will kind of keep me engaged while I still have these other things working in the background.
0: So you're a senior VP for Toros Investments. What exactly does that Actually, no, let's talk about Torozo Investments themselves. Like, Mm -hmm. um, tell us more about them.
1: So Torozo Investments is an ETF services platform. um, And platform is sort of the big piece of that is we're really there to help our partners enter in the market. We're not, um, you're not going to see our name like splashed across billboards or on anything that you're investing in. We really work with entrepreneurs and other investment managers who have ideas that we think are interesting that they wanna bring to market and we help them bring those to market. So Toroso's got a couple of different brands under the umbrella. There's Toroso Investments, which is where we do a lot of our advisory work. That's where we we actually have an arm that does investment decisions and we help people, we help different fund managers and from a trading perspective, from a strategy setup perspective. Uh, We also have something called the ETF Think Tank, which is a content arm. Um, So we produce videos, produce a lot of there's, you know, there's a blog, we produce, there's a lot, there's a huge social media arm attached to that. And what we use that for is to help both our clients as well as sort of other fund, uh, fund managers get their name out, we help them connect to different advisors and and try and do a a little bit of matchmaking on that front. Uh, And then the main thrust of what we do is what's called title ETF services. And that's what where the main piece of our platform is. And what that'll, what that does is, Let's say you have an idea. You want, you know, you have an investment thesis. You're one guy sitting in a room, but you've been doing all this research. You have, you know, you think that you've we're not gonna nobody nobody cracks the market, but you think that you've found an interesting, unique idea that's got some white space and nobody else is in, but you don't know how to get it out there. For example, for example, let's say this was 20 years ago and you saw the electric car boom coming, right? And you wanted a way to invest in electric cars and you think that the best way to do that is, you know, these things are going to be largely driven by their batteries. We're going to invest in, in battery battery technology, battery production companies, right? And that's actually the story of one of the biggest funds that our founders got started, which is the which was the first tradable lithium fund. That the thesis there was electric cars are coming, we want a way to invest in batteries. We're going to build a fund that is going to target the, you know, the best emerging lithium companies, right? So you could come to us and say, hey, I have this idea. And depending on what your capabilities are, we'll fill in the rest of it. If you can trade it yourself, then fantastic. If you have marketing behind you, fantastic. If you have money behind you, fantastic. But if you don't have any of those things, we can help set you up. We'll set you up on what we call our trust, uh, which is just the legal structure under which a lot of the ETFs are set up or all ETFs are set up. And then we'll help you along the way. We'll build a marketing plan. We'll build out distribution. We'll help you raise money. We kind of are a a la carte one-stop shop for anybody who wants to start a fund, basically.
0: Wow. Okay, cool. I thought, to also, uh from what I looked up, Michael, I, I mentioned I've listened to a podcast with Michael Venuto, mm-hmm. one of the founders. And the impression I got was that he was really big into the research. But I guess that's just part of it, right? um i t- i didn't understand that um like you say it's a one stop shop for helping fund managers like put funds together
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Venuto is one of our co-founders. He's actually one of the original two co-founders. The company has been through a couple different iterations. Mm. Uh, so he was one of the original two that started the company 10 years ago. Guillermo? Uh, no, Dan Carlson, our CFO slash COO. Mm. Uh, so when they had originally started the company, we did not have this platform element. It really was a research and consulting shop. Mm. So the Toroso investment side of the business and the think tank side of the business. Titled the fund platform part of the business came online about four years ago. So it's a it's a bit of a newer piece of the business, but it's really ramping up. I mean we've increased the size of that business by fifty percent over the last year and we're looking to hopefully double over the course of the next year.
0: Wow. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of good traction there. I mean ETFs are the we think are the, you know, the best product out there for most investors to to put their money into just from a cost perspective, from a transparency perspective, and just the number of options that you have. Um, so we see a lot of movement heading in that direction.
0: So for people who don't know, from what I understand, uh, an ETF is like a mutual fund, but without the same kind of regulations. Is that right? And to your point of like transparency.
1: So the the regulations are just are just a little bit different, and I'll I'll be very careful because there are some mutual some sorry some ETFs that don't necessarily have to give daily transparency the same way that most that most do. But let's talk in broad strokes. Ninety percent of ETFs, right? Uh, First of all, you can trade them anytime. They trade like a stock. You can just go into your broker's account. You could trade them anytime. There's always a market for them. Um, You have full transparency into until the value of the underlying instruments are. Like I said, most of the time on a live, uh, you know, on a, on a live basis, every end of day, like you can kind of see, all right, I know exactly what's in that fund. I know the prices of each of them. I can figure out how much it should be worth and there and, and derive a price from there. Um, So that's, that's thing number one. Uh, So there's just an accessibility and transparency component to it. You can trade it all the time. There are no, there's no load fees going in and out of like, mm. like you would with a mutual fund hmm. and and, and yeah, and, and if the pricing of the fund starts to deviate from what the underlying value is, there are actually mechanisms in there to to get it to snap back. Um, so it's a it's a very efficient way to trade. It's also a much more tax efficient way to trade because you can within the fund itself there, are, I won't get super technical about it, but you don't necessarily <laughs> have to um, recognize all of your gains in the fund. There are ways that you can manage the trading so that you retain um, capital appreciation within the fund, and you don't have to pay taxes until you sell out, as opposed to mutual funds that have distributions that are, you know, that have to get mandatorily distributed, um, and which you'll pay taxes on kind of throughout the life.
0: So, for as long as we have known each other, we've never actually talked finance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's not the most exciting subject.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, well, it depends. So, well, I wanted to interview for uh, interview uh, you for Bank the Fire as an excuse to like record our conversation, um, Adam, I don't, I don't know what happened. Like, but this past summer, when the market was really hot, I got, I got the bug again, uh, for all of the, all of those who don't know, once upon a time, I worked for Morgan Stanley many, many lifetimes ago. And I, and I had to pull out, I had to like, I had to leave because it was just, I wasn't in the market. I didn't have a Series Seven. I wasn't a financial advisor, but just seeing the market fluctuations was really exciting, and I was getting really emotional about it, and I couldn't handle it, and so I stepped away from ever even considering finance. Um, so, so to kind of get into it now, it's like, oh wow, this is a game. I mean, that's debatable. I see your expressions. It's like, yes, it's not a game. It's very serious. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, th- I think. I mean, I think that's the thing. Is it is super serious, and and um, I was still at bank of america when the whole meme stock thing took off and and it was kind of interesting to watch uh what was happening in the retail space where it was super gamified versus what we could do and what we could actually see in terms of volumes in the market and in terms of what the big institutional investors were doing with their money and i think that i'm, I'm of two minds with sort of like the whole robin hood revolution and all of these things like it's great i think it's it's actually fantastic that you bring more people into the market. I think that it's historically been a little bit a too opaque but also gated in terms yeah. of participation. Mm-hmm. so it's fantastic to see people getting involved, but you know it's a very it's a it's a very potentially dangerous place if you don't know what you're doing. yes, and I don't think that some of these companies are being held accountable enough to make sure. That the, you know that people that are putting significant amounts of their money into these you know into these platforms understand what they're doing. Do I want to babysit everybody? No. I mean you know at the end of the day you know if you're a grown up you can choose what to do with your money. But I think that there are just certain things that, um, without necessarily becoming fiduciaries, that some of these platforms can do to at least try and be more proactive about educating people about some of the positions that they're getting into. And just some of the market mechanics that can, you know, that can go against you without sort of realizing that they even exist.
0: This is why people get educated in finance. This is, there's a reason there are schools and you know degrees based around this. You don't just walk in thinking like it's, this isn't gambling. There's information behind like investing.
1: You touched on it from, you know, when you were at Morgan Stanley and not being licensed. I mean, there's licensing behind this, right? Like you, yeah, we, you know, we insist that for certain positions, um, and I should just say off the bat, I'm not licensed. Thank God, I've never wanted to go through any of that stuff. <laughs> but that's why I don't give advice, and I, you know, I, I'm not executing for other people. Right. But there is licensing behind this, and it's there for a reason: is to make sure that you understand the mechanics of what's going on. And it's it, it's almost analogous to like a driver's test, right? It's not it's not mm-hmm. the super interesting stuff that you're being tested on, right? It's all of these weird minutiae, right? Like the same way the driver's test is full of questions about you know, about what you do at a railroad crossing or or like how much you can drink and stuff like that. It's all the stuff that is not core to what you're doing because you get in and everybody's interested in the trading part. Nobody cares about margin, right? Nobody cares about clearing mechanics, but those are the things that will really blow up on you when the market starts to go crazy. So I think that's, you know, that's, that's important for people to understand that there's, you know, when everything is working hunky dory, then it's, Fantastic, and no, you know you don't have to worry about things, and things are constantly rising.
0: You mean versus right now?
1: Versus right now, (laughs) versus you know versus what happened with GameStop and AMC, uh, GameStop and AMC, and all those guys. I mean, you know, people got stopped out on trades; they didn't understand what that meant, and you know they lost their shirts. So, um, I think it's just you know it's incumbent upon the platforms to make sure that the people are that are using them are familiar enough, or at least you know, put themselves forward as being familiar enough to to really, to really claim the space. And that kind of aligns, you know, just to bring it back to what I'm doing now, that really aligns with what, you know, with how we think of the world, right? Like we don't want any random person throwing funds out there that we think are going to be dangerous to people, right? Like we will consider not just, you know, this potential for success in the landscape, but also its usability, who the end user base is going to be, whether we think that it needs to be gated in any way, shape or form. And, and we do do that. I mean, there are certain products that we will launch in different formats because we do not want everybody to use them because we think they're far too dangerous. They have a, pl- a small place in a portfolio for certain kinds of investors, but they're not for everybody. And we'll, you know, we'll make sure to, or we try our best hmm. to, to you know, to limit access if we think that it's, it's appropriate. But, you know, on the flip side, we're trying to make this as a, you know, we're trying to make the, you know, the majority of our, of our products as accessible to people as possible. One of the things I, I don't recall if we've ever talked about this, but one of the things that actually really attracted me to the company is that I was brought on to, uh, look into setting up a platform for alternative investments that aren't usually available to everybody. So Mm -hmm. things like art and wine and watches. Right.
0: And you're, uh, the term you used with me is uh, micro-investments, kind of like what Robinhood is doing for stocks and crypto. And not
1: so much micro, but fractional. The, the oh, word I fractional. would use is fractional. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, in the, in the same way that, oh, not necessarily in the same way, but those are those tend to be the kinds of investments that are only accessible to people who already have money, like mm-hmm. vast quantities of money. And, and, and you know, the, the, their investments will generally only be a small portion of their portfolio because these are very esoteric things. But the, even those small portions require hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to properly, in, to properly allocate out to. Um, and so they're just not accessible to people. And just, there hasn't been a mechanism that allows your regular person with an IRA who wants to put 100 bucks or $1,000 or $5,000 into it to get access to it. And that's something that we'd like to try and do what well, we will be able to do it is is still up in the air and we've got a lot of lawyers and me working on it but it's interesting and i think that that's you know it's again it's sort of part of the mission driven element of what we do is we really we want to bring access to all of these different types of products and we think that these kinds of things are not just interesting but necessary i mean if you look at things like wine you look at things like art these are asset classes that have gone up you know tens if not hundreds of percent over the last couple of years their correlations to the stock market as a whole are almost zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they have fantastic diversification characteristics and they're also, they're generally inflation protected because they'll generally rise with inflation. But again, that's, you know, that's something where that is usually only accessible to very, very wealthy people. And we'd like to change that.
0: So for the art aspects aspect, let's say, I don't remember which artist it was, but some artists recently, American artists recently broke the record for like highest, um, piece of art at auction recently god do you remember was it
1: I think it was, a warhol, that was broke, a warhol that was like yeah i think it was a warhol Marilyn uh Marilyn monroe one that broke the basket yes.
0: right the basket yeah so are you talking about like in that kind of realm like what do you mean in terms of like being able to invest in art
1: but yeah i mean exactly that what we would love to do again it's it's to it's cbd but there are things oh like god. that that exist in the private space it's like
0: yeah, are you talking about like funds and fund was it you're talking about like private institutions that own like these these yeah. really expensive pieces of art and like having a piece of that?
1: Exactly. So if you've heard of masterworks, that that's something that that already exists right now that will allow you mm-hmm. to invest in art in smaller tranches. I think their minimum is like $2500. Again, it's much cheaper than than usual, but it's still we don't think that it's as accessible and also doesn't offer you that liquidity like if I wanted to trade out of that fund in, into something else, you don't have that liquidity it's it is a private investment you're locked into however long they want to hold you in that in that wow. in the fund uh, or whatever the prospectus of the fund says, usually kind of a couple years to five years as well they're where they'll lock you up but it's exactly that the idea would be to set up funds with Pools of money that will then go out and be able to invest in. Uh, yeah, I don't know enough about art to tell you if it'll invest in a Warhol or <laughs> the right, whatever. Adam needs to be here, but right. um, but yeah, the idea would be to accumulate enough of the size of a fund that you could then go out and and you know participate in these auctions as you know on equal footing with all of these in, these these private um, private collectors. So, you know, but I think the key thing to say there is you know it, it's it's asset selection and sort of the process. And that's not something that we would ever do ourselves, right? We don't hold ourselves out to be wine experts or art experts or car experts. The idea is to always find the, you know, the, the um, experts in the field who would be the actual managers of the of the portfolio and we're there to just set up the legal framework and the distribution and all of the back end to make sure that it works and that it can get listed and that people have access to it and the liquidity functions and all that we're we're the we're the mechanics we're literally we're just sort of making yeah. sure that the car is running and that we have we're out there looking for race car drivers.
0: um so in developing this platform is it going to be like Robinhood esque like is it because last time i asked you you said people don't directly invest with you Like you develop products and you put it out and then Mm -hmm. other people and people can invest on other platforms. Mm -hmm. But with this platform in terms of fractional investments, does that mean, is the hope for people to be able to directly invest with you guys or is it going to be another ETF product?
1: The idea would be to set up like an ETF product so that anybody can get in and out with whoever their broker is, et cetera. It it likely will not technically be an ETF because ETFs are just not set up to handle that type of product. Mm Mm-hmm. But we want to maintain a lot of the same characteristics in terms of who can invest in it, how fr- how uh, the liquidity mechanisms work, and how frequently you can trade it, and what types of accounts you can hold it in. Uh, we want to make it as simple and easy as possible. So to your, your Robinhood question, it would be, you know, our ideal state would be yes that you would be able to trade it through Robinhood or TD or whatever you know Schwab, whoever your whoever your um, your broker is. Uh, so to us, those would just be access platforms to get to to get access to the stock. Where we'd be agnostic. the idea is to set it up on an exchange where you'd be agnostic as to how they're trading it.
0: Uh, on brand with Toros, you you guys are all about developing product.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're not looking to start up a a closed ecosystem investment platform or anything like that. the The bread and butter of what we do is to is to set up products that are. Broadly investable and that are accessible both in your normal retail accounts, but also retirement accounts available for uh, for pension funds and and you know institutional investors kind of across the board. You know the idea is to make it as easy to trade as IBM stock, basically.
0: So to reiterate, you you weren't looking to be employed by anyone, but since a friend of yours was already working in Toros and they like Toroso, they t- Toroso, excuse me. That's <laughs> they recruit recruit you for Toroso and you went in because you're down with the message, like making investments accessible. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, it was partly that alt platform that I, that we were just talking about, but Mm -hmm. also just broadly speaking, being in line with, um, just the values that the founders have in terms of what kinds of products we want to put out there and how we go about doing it. We don't think that we're ever going to be, the biggest necessarily it's not about that or all things to all people we're about building out a niche for ourselves where we're going to partner from you know from start to finish in terms of helping you assess the feasibility of your product but also p- even participating economically going forward if you know if you need help you know in terms of raising assets and we think that it's something that we want to be invested in we may invest alongside right so um you know so we try and be as sele- both as selective as possible in terms of who comes onto our platform, but also as transparent as possible about how we, you know, how we think things are positioned in terms of being able to succeed.
0: Yeah. To think about what you were like when I first met you, tell, tell people the story.
1: Yeah. You completely changed my take on wellness and uh, I guess like a holistic approach to like how the body. works. So um, uh, so again, back to the motorcycle thing, we were at this shop, uh, downtown somewhere in the city,
0: Prince street. uh,
1: called Phil Prince street. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's down the cell. And we were, and we were at some event and there, and we were going to dinner afterwards and I just had the craziest migraine, which, you know, I don't, I don't get a lot of those. I'll get maybe one or two a year, but it was mm. just, at, it was, it was ruining me. And I was just like, there's no way I can make this. I, I'm not going to be fun to be around. I'm just going to head home. And Bob popped out of nowhere and said, why don't you sit down and give me, give me five, give me five minutes. Give me five minutes. I was like, okay. And his background, I don't like to be touched. I had never liked massages. I had never oh liked my, God. my head.
0: <laughs> I didn't know this. I didn't no, know no, this. No, but
1: to be fair, I had yeah. told you that and yeah. you said, it's all right. I, I. We did talk it over before. Yeah. You didn't just grab my head. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Uh, so I sat, you said, let me try this thing on your on your head real quick. I said, sure, we'll give it, you know, I'll try anything at this point. Sat down in the middle of the store <laughs> in Prince Street, right? Nothing's going to stop uh, me,
0: man. And, <laughs> Nothing's going to stop me.
1: Yeah. And you started doing this thing on my uh, with my temples and my head. And within five minutes. Ninety-five percent better. Like it was almost completely gone, and I was able to hop in and you know (laughs) go to dinner. And I was like, and it just completely changed my take on you know how the body interplays with mind and feelings and all that. Because before that, I'd I'd always thought you know massage or any of that was really just kind of a call a a bougie like feel good type of thing, right?
0: Floofy. The word is floofy. Floofy.
1: (laughs) Sure, floofy. but that completely changed my, you know, my take on it. And it, you know, and that's when I started coming to you for, for intuitive massages. And that was huge. When I was at the bank, it was a huge stress oh. reliever for mm-hmm. me. I mean, and I, you, you could tell, you could tell how my shoulders were um, when I'd come in versus when I would leave. And I think that was just sort of a, an entree into thinking not just about the physical side of it, but also just the holistic side of it. And I, honestly, I give you credit for, it's putting me on the path towards me making the decision to leave banking eventually even in in a way right like because because I think it's a bit you can't understate the importance of you know that that eureka moment where you go you know what it's not you know your life is not just these silos of home work exercise that like everything kind of plays together and when I started seeing how the work that you that you and Zoe were doing at Mahalo on me to kind of sort me out from a physical perspective and what that did to my mental state and clarity at work and just thinking more broadly about what I was doing at work. I'd say, yeah, I I would definitely give you credit for kind of putting me in the right mental state to be ready to think about other options. Wow, man. It's huge.
0: I didn't know you had this. I think you just I didn't know you had this story. Uh, you were telling me I don't I don't remember how it came about. You were telling me that you tell everyone the story. I'm like, what story? And you're like, and then you brought me back. And I totally like I didn't think about it. I don't I didn't remember it until you said it. I was like, oh, I did. That. You know, because it's like the it's just the what it's what I you live. do. You you're, you're you're
1: and, just so giving. Yeah. you you just right. do it. But for me, it was so huge because it it really changed how I think about. it. I mean, honestly, before that point, I was like, this is all Hokum. That's amazing. And it something flipped, right? i I'm not I didn't I didn't do a complete one eighty in the moment, but I was like, hey, I feel much better. And then it became yeah. open to massage it opened the and door. what it would do for yeah. you know, what it could do for me sort of emotionally and, and mentally. And from there it just opened up my eyes.
0: So schoolmate, what did you think of your migraine before? Did you what like was it something I, that was just yeah, happening? It was to one you, of those or... things where
1: it's like, okay, the way you deal with this is you go home. You take a bunch of Tylenol. You sit in the dark room, and hopefully, it'll be on tomorrow. And you get back to business.
0: Mm. Huh? Just something to be treated, and not mm-hmm. like there was. There was no question as to like how exactly. it originated. Yeah,
1: it was just a part. It was. It was a cost of doing business. almost.
0: Wow. Okay. Because of the way I think now, like I just don't think about that, and I don't necessarily have those conversations in my office because, you know, I don't want to like. Hey, why aren't you putting it together? No, it's not. It's like, okay, what's the issue? Like, okay. And I mean, I, as you know, since you work with my company, um, and we have Martina now too. So it's m- myself, Zoe, and Martina. The questions that we ask are just like full range. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, when people, I know the kind of person I'm dealing with when I ask them, so how do you feel about work? And the look on their face will tell me like, how it is that they can like make that connection as to their well-being and in terms of what you were saying like that's a really great way to put it I've never thought of it that way but the silos home work and everything else right mm-hmm. versus like the integration of everything and one affects the other and affects the other affects the other
1: so it's super personal I mean I think you do have to sort of experience it or come to that realization organically somehow I think if you mm-hmm. try and beat it into somebody's oh, yeah. no way. and I know this because I try and do it with my with my <laughs> friends. Like mm. I mean, you know, from I've been I've been in finance since two thousand and three, so almost twenty years at this point. So yeah. it yeah. goes without saying that the vast majority of my friends are are somewhere in the finance world, right? And they have a very similar thought process to how I uh, used to approach things all the time, and sometimes find myself still reverting to type almost. I talked to my friends about it a lot just because in addition to the work that I did with you guys, but just sort of thinking about what I want out of work and, and sort of mm. what's important and what, what kinds of things, you know, get me excited or get me frustrated. A lot of it used to be very work related. And you have to sort of think like, is that the right focus? And what was I deprioritizing as a result? And it was, it was family, it was friends, and it was well-being in general, right? Yeah.
0: Great way to put it, deprioritizing. A hundred percent. a really great way to put it.
1: And, and, and it, it's not even, I'm not even guessing at it. Like we would talk about this and I still talk about this very openly mm-hmm. with people of similar ilk who have been on Wall Street for a long time or somewhere in finance for a long time. We go, we work to get paid and then we use that money to pay for everything else, right? Like, so thing number one is you just work and you do the job and you do whatever you have to do and then you can fix everything else with what you make doing that job and it just gets drilled into you from such an early age um particularly for a lot of us because you know the way that you get into is you come out of school and you go into a training program and you never do anything different it's a bunch of people who look a lot like you kind of doing the exact same thing similar background and you just get this cultural indoctrination from you know from from the day you walk in the door um and I, I truly believe that the people that teach you that and the people that live by it today really believe it. That that's how they structure their lives, and and it's a way. You know, it's it's a model. It's a model. It's a, way. It's a model yeah. to follow. I'm not saying it's the right or the wrong one, but you know, for me, it was just making me a very unhappy and be very unhealthy.
0: I. Right, but you you made that correlation.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. That it was making you unhappy, unhealthy versus other people. is just like, you know, everything else going on in their life. It's not the work. It can't be the work.
1: But it, it's hard. It's not it's not an easy thing to do when you work your whole life to get to a specific position. And then you're thinking about potentially like dropping. It's not something that comes naturally. People, I say that I was open to the idea and that sort of different framework because of starting to work with you guys. But I think also the main, you know, a big kicker was covid. COVID forced us into a completely different way of working and forced us to interact with people in a completely different way. And I was able to actually very luckily knock on wood to spend time with my daughter in a way that I hadn't to before because I wasn't commuting to the city and leaving my house at five o'clock in the morning and getting home at 11 and never being at home, right? And it just opened my eyes to a completely different way of life and really showed me all of the things I was missing that I couldn't buy back with whatever I earned doing, doing the job, right? And I realized that I was robbing myself of those things by choosing to work in a, in a particular kind of way and deprioritizing family life and all these other things. So I think being open to that thought process initially was important and then getting that real, just complete change in paradigm that COVID just forced us all to think different or to be in a different state. I feel very lucky that I was able to combine the two and be like, you know what? There's a different way for me to go forward. I can rework my priorities. I I should I need to be more intentional about setting priorities and not just continue with the ones that I've had throughout my entire adult life and then restructure as a result.
0: Amazing. I think you just uh outlined the purpose of Bank the Fire right there. Huh. <laughs> like everything you just said. Yeah, awesome. straight up. It's the like work is unavoidable. Right. And so there's the work is unavoidable. I mean, that's blanket statement, you know, let's not take that as gospel, but in my life, work is unavoidable. Like if I'm not working at some point, I'm going to create a project that's going Mm -hmm. to create work for me because I love, I love problem solving. I love Mm -hmm. figuring stuff out. I love doing stuff. I love interacting with people, whatever, X, Y, Z. Just something. To, it's like I. It's if I feel like if we're not working on something, even if it's working on living, then we're just dying, right? And so it's so beautiful to hear how your life has changed after God. We've known each other what like seven years now.
1: Twenty sixteen. Yeah, going on.
0: Yeah, six years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that you said about Toroso that I really loved is that you guys don't have office spaces. Mm-hmm. There's no going into the office for you guys. You guys are all perma uh, working from home? That's right.
1: Yep. Whereas we're, I forget if we're 38 or 39. The number kind of hovers around that number, but there's 38, call it 39 of us. And we're kind of in, you know, a few different hubs. There's a, peop- there's a bunch of people in the Chicago area. There's a bunch of people in the Milwaukee area. And then there's a bunch of people here in New York-ish, but not necessarily close. I mean, I'm up in Westchester. We've got guys up in the Catskills. We've got guys out on Long Island. In Chicago, it's some people in the city, some in the suburbs. It's there; they just tend to congregate because that's how people get to know each other. But it's it, you know we don't have necessarily offices to go into. Will that change at some point? Potentially, there may be a couple, of, uh, you know, a couple of spots that it makes sense for a few people to 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 set up like a WeWork or something congregate. to go to to congregate. But because there's bigger, you know, bigger concentrations of people, and they just need somewhere to have meetings and whatnot. But no, I mean we're we're committed to giving people that flexibility to be at home as a, you know, as the primary option. If you want to go into an office, I mean, sometimes I'll go to the city and I'll grab a WeWork just because like I have meetings or because I need to change the scenery or what have you. It's nice to be around different people at a WeWork sometimes, but, but no, I mean, for a lot of, Excuse me,
0: communal working space.
1: Sorry, (laughs) at at a communal working space. That's correct. (laughs) That's right. We could, you know, sometimes we'll end up going to different communal working spaces to meet with, you know, with with each other, with different clients, or just to get a different change of scenery, to to be around other people, you know, throughout the day, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being on Zoom. But no, but broadly speaking, you know, a lot of people have families, and even the people who don't have families, they just, you know, they have other interests. Like I mentioned, like the side gig thing, a lot of people have side gigs. We all want to be able to do them in a, uh, you know, in a way that's not going to be, completely thrown off by a commute or being tethered to a particular city or what have you so yeah it just it works for us and and hopefully we'll be able to keep it going
0: so that's beautiful it sounds like an incredible company to work for like listening to michael venuto in that podcast like you said it to me you texted me afterwards after i told you but it's like i already picked up the interview the guy is so family oriented and the For somebody who's so family oriented, it's like you can't not treat others like that Mm -hmm. with the same kind of um, spirit. Um, I mean, yes, people. Yeah, I just don't get the sense from the guy that he's like separating the two, that, that sense of community. That said, will you be ready for when cannabis is legal?
1: We probably won't um just because it's been deprioritized for us in terms of you know from a work perspective. Um if anybody was going to get it over the line full time it was probably going to be B and now that I've picked up a full time job again it probably won't. What will probably happen is that we'll wait to see how the how the landscape develops with sort of the first few licenses that that come out and where people end up setting up. How production gets structured because you know the way things are now you can't you can't export it across state lines. So until we have a robust production infrastructure in new york you're just not going to have the same variety of product that you have in other states as well so we'll probably you know there we had initially kind of hoped to be you know first to market ready to go um but it it just unfortunately hasn't worked out that way but it's part of the dream that's a
0: waiting game yeah, that's a waiting game. Being first to market, it's like and it's waiting on legislation legislation to make that happen.
1: Yeah, and it, yeah, man, it's just sitting but, on a lot of money and investors and people who are yeah. like, "Hey, what's happening?" You are like, oh, we gotta wait until things right. happen." So right. while you lose that first mover advantage, I think it's a little bit of an easier uh, an easier sell once everything is in place and you don't have all of these um, unknowns still flying around on the regulatory side.
0: There is a TED Talk by Adam Grant. I can't remember what it's called something to do with like originators and improvers or something. It's basically, it's like uh, the whole fantastic talk, but he talks about like people are first to market and then everybody else gets to learn the lessons from them Mm -hmm. and improve on the product. And then first to market tends to drop out. So on top of what you're already doing in, in terms of the investment space, like, why do the business when you can just invest in the business and like step back?
1: Well, from a, from a cannabis perspective, I think there's, you know, the, like I said, one of the things that's super attractive to me and, and some of the people I w- I'm working with this on is, mm. is the wellness side of it. Right. Is It's not just like, a, right. uh, this is my problem is, is I, I tend to gravitate towards things that don't make money. There's no money in motorcycle tourism and I'm sure the margins will be super tight in, in marijuana or in cannabis, but, there is an element of it that is, I think could be very helpful for people. And if that's, you know, if that resonates and you build a brand and you grow from there, amazing. But if not, if it pays, the you know, if it pays the bills for itself and you are helping get the message out, for me, that would be a win. Like for me, cannabis was never a get rich kind of endeavor, right? There's there's too many big people already out there that are going to, you know, going to flood the market with cheaper and broader Mm. access and things like Mm -hmm. that. For me, it was about being more niche. I, I definitely don't want to lose money on it, but there's, it, again, it's sort of, it would be, again, like a more mission-based type of thing where the idea would be to, to educate, to help people get access to things. I mean, there's things like like DNA tests to help you figure out what, you know, what the best way is to consume and what type and where and how, and and people just don't know about that so becoming sort of a center yeah, that I allows you to no do that clue. kind of thing and helps people use it for a specific purpose. And you know what? And honestly, amazing. if you just want to do bong rips and watch Rick and Morty, then you're all, you know, I'm, I'm down with you too. Like I, <laughs> I, I no problem with that. Right. Um, but I think that there's, a, we have a, we have a different element to sell also.
0: Oh, I hold on. Why did you get into finance?
1: that is such a boring story. I mean, it's, it's the, give it to me. Typical, you're in college, figure out what you're going to do for a career kind of move. Um, so I have, so I went to Claremont mm-hmm. McKenna, which is out in Southern California and it, uh, it's a liberal arts college, but it tends to be very, uh, professionally oriented. So we have a lot of lawyers and a lot of finance people and a lot of people that go to grad school and stuff like that. Uh, okay. And it, uh, it was almost pre-written, and I mean, and to be fair, like a lot of people in my in my family also were worked at banks. There's no like family bank business or anything like that, but it's, there were a lot of people in finance and in the family. It was an easy thing to, to to see. So it's a very boring and unoriginal story. It's what I saw growing up around the house. It was a strong suit at the school that I went to. That's where I did my internships. I got it. Let's just put it this way: I got in. I got in the pipeline real early. Uh, so we were talking about how you get into mm-hmm. training programs and all that. I got into the think about being in finance pipeline probably as a sophomore in college. And you just kind of, wow. uh, yeah. And if, and if and if nobody's questioning it and nobody's forcing you to question it, you just kind of stick with it. And so it's funny that you say that because now when I get asked by kids um, who who go to the college because I'm part of the alumni network and people who reach out or just, you know, or just friends, kids who are asking about what they should do when they grow up and they want to talk to me about finance I really grill them on why they want to be in finance because I, nobody ever asked me that question when I was younger mm-hmm. I just said finance mm-hmm. sounds cool I'd like to be in that and nobody questioned it they said that's excellent that's a job that makes a lot of money you should definitely do it and and I ask a lot of questions when people tell me that they want to be in finance because I think there's you know it's easy to get swept up in this um illusion that it's potentially going to be super lucrative it's not for everybody um, but it's easy to get swept up in that and it's easy to, to be convinced that it's for everybody and it's not I think that there's just certain personalities and dispositions that are not you know not best suited for it uh, and I think it's important to have people who've been in it kind of like grill people a little bit and figure out if they're going to be the right fit or if they have the right sort of persuasion is the right kind of natural uh, inclinations to be able to kind of resist some of the more difficult elements of the job to handle in terms of culture in terms of pace in terms of creativity and that kind of thing
0: it's amazing to me that you've stayed in it
1: it's oh for for this portion of my life I mean I think it, it is a bit of a surprise to me that I that I um, that I ended up working back at a at a um a finance oriented company it's a very different kind of place though um and not one that i before moving to it would have really thought about because again like you get sort of railroaded into this sort of bank hedge fund type of thought process so kind of again sort of knowing what's out there knowing what you want to do what's important to you and how you want that career to fit within the broader structure of your life um is It's important to have that before you kind of dive in with both feet. I think for me, my initial reaction when I left the banks was very much, I'm not going to do this again. It's not, um, you know, it didn't really fit with how I wanted to structure my life. Um, but then I stepped back and thought about it more um, uh, deliberately, right? And figured out what are the things that I didn't want to replicate? But what are the things that I did want to keep, and what are what are the what's the knowledge base and the network that I wanted to keep, you know, to be able to continue utilizing? And it just it lent itself to to working in the fund space. It's a, it's very different than the banks, has a very different client clientele, but uses a lot of the same skill sets. Allows you to work with a lot of you know similarly inclined people. And um, now I'm, and I'm super happy that I found it because I think again I think it was very it, it was sort of lucky because I wouldn't have sought it out on my own.
0: That's amazing. That's awesome. I'm happy for you. you. I'm so glad you're like still able to like utilize all your skills in a happy space.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Where did you grow up? I don't even know your ethnic background. Like, I don't know what kind of so name. So Khatam is Arabic.
1: Uh, I was born in California, but I, when I was six months old, we moved to Saudi because my dad is Saudi. So the vast majority of my family is actually Arab and still lives in the Middle East. My mom's side of the family is Chinese American. So they're from California. Um, but ethnically Chinese, although no Chinese speakers. So my gran- yeah, my grandfather was actually born in uh, in Hawaii uh, in like the early nineteen teens, and he didn't learn to speak Chinese until uh, until the war. So he he shipped off to China for the Second World War, and that's when he learned Chinese when he was in his thirties. Oh my god. Yep. So not yeah. So not a lot of.
0: I mean, I say this because I don't. I don't speak Mandarin at all. So to hear some and uh, to hear that an adult learn how to speak Chinese is like amazing. I mean,
1: so he ended up going back and actually living there for a little while and like really connected with you know with with China. But that was after you know after he'd been in the states for 30, 40 years. So um, so we don't have mm-hmm. a lot of connection to the Chinese part of our background, which is sad. Um, but the Arab side is very tight. Like the vast majority of my family is still in Saudi Arabia. Um, my parents still spend a decent amount of time back and forth. Uh, between here and Saudi Arabia, and, like all my uncles, aunts, cousins, the whole the whole crew, still back there.
0: That's great, but but you're staying here. Right? I don't think you're I'm going leaving.
1: anywhere. I like it. I like it too much. I got used to. I got used to seasons.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I forget that your your mother is eth- is mm-hmm. ethnically Chinese, and then you and your daughter is half. Korean. My daughter's
1: half Korean, so
0: she's a lot. She's a lot more Asian than I think she, she is. is.
1: Three quarters. Three quarters. <laughs> yeah, thanks for doing that. <laughs> she's three three quarters. Asian. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I even have a Chinese middle name which throws everybody at the airport for a loop when they see the two Arab names on the side yeah, and the man. Chinese middle name.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh so I guess people can't find you anywhere except at
1: uh They can find me on LinkedIn. Um they can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on the Turoso website and shoot me an email uh if you're interested in learning more about what we do or just want to talk about, you know, talk about finance, talk about uh alternative investments. We didn't get to talk about it today, but talk about crypto. It's something that I'm interested in and we're trying to do more in the space. So,
0: Hmm. Oh, whoa. Really? Uh, (laughs) Damn. (laughs) You're giving this to me now?
1: (laughs) To be fair, that one we can't talk about.
0: Okay, cool. So that's a private call. Um, Okay, so uh, all the links will be in the show notes. Hatem, I'm so glad we finally got to talk. Oh, this (laughs) is
1: so great. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining me and my conversation with Hatem Banaja today. Next week, I will be sitting with Kelly Marshall. She is a New York-based photographer specializing in interiors, travel, and portraiture. Her commercial and fine artwork are interwoven as she explores inherent belief systems, how they construct our lives, our physical homes, and in essence, our everyday reality. I'd like to thank my producer, Desi, for helping me make Bank the Fire possible, and all of you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast, please go to Patreon to make a contribution or become a patron. Please follow us on social media and share our podcast. Thank you and tune in next week.